The Bills really needed to get more out of Tyrod Taylor this year, didn't they? Yeah, Tyrod Taylor just left them wanting more. Just didn't quite give them what they expected. You thought Tyrod Taylor would give you so much more than he actually did. What? 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 This is what I heard. Bills GM Doug Whaley said the following about Tyrod Taylor. Tyrod Taylor needs to become the type of quarterback who can put the team on his back late in the game. Yes. Taylor has had more success than anyone imagined in his first season as a starter, but it hasn't been all roses. No, 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 no. Taylor has struggled late in important and winnable games, especially week 14 against the Eagles. Yeah. He's taken too many sacks, and he's had come-and-go accuracy all season. That's according to Roto World. So they agree with GM Doug Whaley that the team needs to get more out of Tyrod Taylor. <laughs> what? Doug Whaley is like that mother, the imposing mother. Nothing is ever good enough for this woman. N nothing! Nothing! You could finish second place in the Millionaire Maker on DraftKings and win $100,000. And this overbearing mother would say, well, that's nice, sweetie, but we need more out of you. You can do better. Hopefully next week, you'll win the whole million. You should be finishing first in all of these contests. Like, what are you talking about? I finished second out of hundreds of thousands of entries. Now next week, you want me to finish first? What the hell is wrong with you, mom? I'm doing great. I got all A's. You want all A pluses? Where did you come from, woman? You're a monster. GM Doug Whaley is a monster. A quarterback who is the closest thing we've seen to Russell Wilson magically appears on your doorstep, Doug Whaley. Literally plucked off the street after four years in the league and is more productive and efficient than you could have possibly imagined. Than anyone in their wildest dreams could have possibly imagined. And yet, at the end of the season... Your thoughts on Tyrod Taylor are, we need to get more out of him. He needs to put the team on his back. He has to take less sacks. He has to be more accurate. Have some perspective. Go to playerprofiler.com and look at Tyrod Taylor. Going into last week, he had the number one production premium on the site for quarterbacks. Plus 33.4. Plus 33.4 production premium, meaning on any given down and distance, Tyrod Taylor was more productive than all of his peers in the NFL. You can't get more out of a quarterback than number one production premium. It's not possible. There's no more to give. 101.8 passer rating, top five. Total QBR, the metric that also incorporates a premium for performances in clutch situations. Total QBR, 67.4, number seven in the league. Yards per attempt, 8.0. Number five in the league. Air yards per attempt, 5.0. Number three in the league. Fantasy points per drop back, 0.59. Number three in the league. Fantasy points per game, what we care about as fantasy players, 20.4, seventh in the league. All going into Tyrod Taylor's Week 16 matchup against an incredibly difficult Dallas Cowboys pass defense. Those were his numbers. Those were his efficiency metrics. And yet GM Doug Whaley isn't satisfied. <laughs> what? How can you not be satisfied with that? Remember, Tyrod Taylor posted those efficiency metrics 
while having only one player in the passing game who anyone would consider above replacement level, Sammy Watkins. But no one would put Sammy Watkins in that Odell Beckham Jr., Antonio Brown, Julio Jones stratosphere. Sammy Watkins isn't at that level yet. Sammy Watkins cannot dominate the best cornerbacks in the league like Julio Jones can, like Odell Beckham Jr. can, like Antonio Brown can. Tyrod Taylor has a good, but not necessarily great, go-to receiver, and everyone else is below replacement. And he has the number one production premium heading into week 16. And you want more? You want more than that. (laughs) Unbelievable. It really is. Do you know how hard it is to find a viable NFL quarterback? Why don't you ask the people in Cleveland? or Bill O'Brien, or Jeff Fisher, or Chip Kelly. Yes, Chip Kelly. Here's what we've heard about Chip Kelly so far. By the way, in case you've been living on another planet and you're just arriving in your spaceship, Chip Kelly has been fired by Philadelphia before week 17, which is very odd. Either you fire your head coach in the middle of the season or you wait until the season is over. Firing a head coach with one week to go is not normal. So something happened. A fissure was created in that organization that required Chip Kelly to leave. So that's interesting. The nonsense narrative, the endlessly regurgitated narrative of the past 24 hours that you keep hearing, the same canned analysis, is as follows. GM Chip Kelly was the demise of Coach Chip Kelly. Yes, GM Chip Kelly killed Coach Chip Kelly. Coach Chip Kelly is still great. He's still a genius innovator. Yeah, he's still a guru. But the GM Chip Kelly was his undoing. That's right. GM Chip Kelly was the demise of Coach Chip Kelly. Wrong! Wrong! All of you that are regurgitating that same analysis over and over again, just parroting one another in this echo chamber that is sports analysis that I hate, you are all wrong! Chip Kelly is neither a good head coach nor a good NFL GM. Chip Kelly is simply not a fit to be an NFL head coach. The most important aspect of being a head coach is being a great manager, a great leader of men, someone who commands respect. You need to be great at managing people, managing personalities, managing egos, managing morale. And it's clear based on how things just ended after week 16, being fired with one week to go, and based on what current and former players are saying, And also what they didn't say publicly, the support they didn't offer Chip Kelly. You put that all together, and it's pretty clear that Chip Kelly is none of those things. He's not a good people person. He can't manage personalities and egos. He wasn't good at raising morale. Those are all of the things that NFL coaches must be good at. That is their number one job requirement, to check those boxes. And if you can't do that, you're not a good NFL head coach, period. There's also a difference between what coaches can do who have tenure and coaches that don't have tenure and what they can do, what they can get away with, the latitude that they have within NFL organizations. The things that a coach like Bill Belichick can do, who's been a head coach in the league for 15 years, is much different than what a new guy can do. It's worlds apart. 
Yet Chip Kelly assumed that he could just skip all the steps necessary, skip all of that reputation building and credibility building, skip all of those steps, and just become a dictator coach on day one in the NFL. And we saw that that doesn't work, that that's not possible. It's just not possible. And anyone that approaches the job with that attitude is destined to fail and by definition isn't a good coach. So if you start a profession with an attitude that makes you destined to fail, then it's impossible for anyone to consider you good at that profession. NFL head coach, not a fit for Chip Kelly, period. You saw what Chip Kelly did. You saw how Chip Kelly treated his players. Chip Kelly treated his players like powerless pawns rather than professionals. The non-tenured NFL coaches, and that's most NFL head coaches. There's a handful of NFL coaches out there that have job security and tenure. John Harbaugh, Mike Tomlin, Bill Belichick, there are only a handful in the league. Most NFL head coaches are non-tenured. And the non-tenured NFL head coaches can't do some of the things that Bill Belichick can do. That's pretty obvious. And it's pretty understandable. The non-tenured NFL coaches work for the players, not vice versa. They are the executive assistants to the players. That's all NFL coaches are. And you can dress it up and you can call them all these different things. And you can give them all these other responsibilities. But at the end of the day, they serve the players. They are there to help the players perform on the field at maximum capacity to the best of their ability. They are glorified executive assistants. And the best NFL head coaches realize that is their role when they enter the league. And then they slowly build a resume. They slowly build credibility. And then their words have more weight. And then over time, they can start to act more like Bill Belichick. Chip Kelly tried to do that on day one, and it was a spectacular failure. You don't believe me? You don't believe me that the non-tenured NFL coaches work for the players, that they are subservient to the players? DeMarco Murray proved to you that that is the case. It is a player's league. DeMarco Murray went over Chip Kelly's head to the owner and said, this guy isn't doing a good job. This guy isn't helping me perform my duties on the football field. This guy is negatively impacting this team and my performance. And I'm letting you know, do with it what you will. And then Chip Kelly was soon fired. The coach that Chip Kelly fashioned himself to be, the image that he had for himself, takes years of credibility at the NFL level to mold. You can't microwave a dictator in the NFL like you can in college. We saw some funny tweets about this. As soon as you see a personality like Chip Kelly get fired in a city like Philadelphia that's very intense about their sports, there's going to be some funny messages on social media. This was the funniest tweet I read by Josh Goldenson. Is it Josh Goldenson? What was it? Josh? I'm going to try to get this right. Let's look this up. Josh Goldenson? Gondelson? Hmm. Josh Gondelman. That's what it was. Josh Gondelman. Thought I could just remember it. The fact that I thought that I could simply remember off the top of my head the name Josh Gondelman without writing it down is a spectacular failure on my part on this show. Because hello, that's a very irregular name. Who's going to remember that name? And you saw me struggle. So this was the funniest tweet by Josh Gondelman. Chip Kelly should go on a road trip to clear his head after this. But for him, a long drive is like 38 yards. Hey! Going on a road trip.
Also, you would think that Chip Kelly's failure would be the final nail in the coffin of the genius coach with the innovative system being the answer archetype right? This myth that we create over and over and over again. Every year, there seems to be a new guy with the innovative system and the schemes that are going to solve NFL defenses, right? And we always put a premium on those players in fantasy. Oh, got to make sure we get Nick Foles on our team, right? Always soaking out the players on the teams with the genius coaches. Put a premium on those players. Those coaches will get the most out of them. Yeah. That player will reach heights with this coach that he's never reached before. He's never had a genius coach like Chip Kelly before. So hopefully, Chip Kelly's failure in Philadelphia will be the final nail in that coffin. Because I think Chip Kelly showed that for one year, yes, if you bring a new system, a new scheme, if you bring some new parlor tricks with you to the NFL, that that lasts one year. That has a one-year shelf life. For one year, you can get an edge on NFL defenses with a gimmick. But they quickly adapt. The Eagles' points per possession declined from the top of the league in Chip Kelly's first year to the middle of the pack in Chip Kelly's second year to the bottom of the league in Chip Kelly's third year. That's the lifespan of an NFL gimmick personified in Chip Kelly. That's just another reason why the failure of Chip Kelly's people skills, the failure of Chip Kelly's leadership skills, and the failure of Chip Kelly's schemes, if you add it all together, it illustrates why Chip Kelly is not a good NFL head coach by any measure. And of course, it doesn't even need to be talked about that Chip Kelly was an abomination as an NFL GM. I mean, no one would dispute that one. But just because he was a bad GM doesn't mean he was a good coach. He can be bad at both, and he was. But then you hear, oh, well, Chip Kelly had a winning record. Meanwhile, Gus Bradley has been more than 20 games under 500 over the same period. That sounds fair. Not. Well, yeah, it actually does sound fair. Because you judge coaches on a curve based on expectations of situations and the expectations they bring on themselves. Chip Kelly wanted expectations high. And that was one of the many lessons that he learned from this experience. Nothing is more valuable than keeping expectations low. Regardless of where the expectations are, there is no magical formula for sustaining an NFL offense. I think we all learned that part. Again. There are no secret schemes. We had to learn that. Again. Chip Kelly retaught us this valuable lesson that we clearly didn't learn from Mike Martz or Steve Spurrier. The lesson is not to scheme chase. But that's what we do. We scheme chase. What are people talking about on social media right now? Oh, where should Chip Kelly go next? Oh, yeah. Can't wait to see where he goes next. I'm excited. He has that exciting up-tempo scheme that makes his players super productive and efficient. Can't wait to see where he goes next, where he brings his magic act next, his parlor tricks next. Where will that innovative scheme fit best? Ooh, how about San Francisco, Colin Kaepernick? Chip Kelly has never had a Colin Kaepernick-type talent at quarterback. Imagine what Chip Kelly could do with Colin Kaepernick. Oh, wow. Imagine. What about Tennessee? Yes, Tennessee. Marcus Mariota. Oh, remember what Chip Kelly did with Marcus Mariota? Oh, that would be a guaranteed success. The perfect match. I love that one. The Chip Kelly would be a perfect fit in Tennessee is the classic generic sports bro simplistic one plus one analysis. Well, 
Let's see here. Chip Kelly had a lot of success with Marcus Mariota at college. Marcus Mariota had a lot of success with Chip Kelly in college. Let's put them together in the pros, and they'll be unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. It's exasperating. No. That sounds like an awful idea. But that's what sports fans do. Sports analysts love the to find the most unsophisticated hypothetical and latch onto that. I mean, Chip Kelly to Tennessee. That is the most ham-handed, obvious hypothetical. And that's what you're going to wave around. Oh, that sounds really good. Oh, that sounds so good. Chip Kelly in Tennessee. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Down boy. Unbelievable. You want to put any thought into that, that opinion whatsoever? No, thanks. Chip Kelly was with Mariota. Mariota was with Chip Kelly. Put them together. That, that's just magic. That's as sophisticated as my brain works. You don't want to think about it in any more depth than that, sports bro? No? Okay. Uh, I think Chip Kelly might be a good NFL offensive coordinator. I think he would be. Not might be. I think Chip Kelly would be a good NFL offensive coordinator, but not in Tennessee. The last place Chip Kelly should go in any capacity is Tennessee. What Marcus Mariota needs are different perspectives and new voices that he hasn't already been exposed to. Marcus Mariota has already learned Chip Kelly's lessons. He doesn't need to hear the same stories retold again. The one quarterback in the league that doesn't need to hear from Chip Kelly right now is Marcus Mariota. What Marcus Mariota needs is a new voice, a new perspective on playing quarterback at a high level in the NFL. But this scheme talk, oh, maddening. Just maddening. You would think that the spectacular failure of Chip Kelly would be the end of the nonsense scheme talk. It's all about the scheme. Oh, scheme fit. Ooh, what scheme is he bringing? Ooh, he seems like a good fit for that scheme. Oh, he's not a good fit for that scheme. Really all depends on the scheme. Everything comes back to the scheme. Oh, if it's a good scheme, they're going to be a good team. If they have a bad scheme, it's going to be a bad team. Really got to figure out the scheme. Once you figure out the scheme, you got it all figured out. Problem is, none of you fully understand the schemes. And none of the schemes are that much different than any of the other schemes. God, ridiculous. But this scheme talk even extends out to the current Philadelphia players. When people are speculating on the future of the current Philadelphia players on the roster, like Zach Ertz and Jordan Matthews. Take Jordan Matthews. I heard this. Well, next year for Jordan Matthews will be important. Everything depends on the new scheme. <laughs> Jesus Christ. These are serious sports personalities who are saying this scheme nonsense, by the way. Next year for Jordan Matthews, everything depends on the new scheme. Will Jordan Matthews move to the perimeter? Ooh, ooh. And can he succeed out there? Oh, yeah. Can Jordan Matthews succeed way out there on the perimeter? I don't know. It's a long way out there. That's pretty dangerous. Not sure Jordan Matthews has it in him to succeed way, 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 way out there on the perimeter. Yeah. The 6'3 Jordan Matthews, who runs a 4'4'6, might have some issues having success on the perimeter. Really? The guy with a 50% college dominator, 90th percentile in the SEC? You think he's going to have difficulty winning on the perimeter after winning on the perimeter every year in college in the most difficult conference in order to win on the perimeter? Of course, he'll be great on the perimeter. 
Chip Kelly moved Jordan Matthews inside because Jordan Matthews is his best receiver and Chip Kelly was obsessed with creating mismatches. He wanted to get Jordan Matthews on a slot corner. He was obsessed with that notion. But Jordan Matthews is not an inside receiver. He belongs outside. Just go to his profile on playerprofiler.com. You're going to see a big receiver who's also fast, who is incredibly dominant in college. That is the profile of an outside receiver, not an inside receiver. I mean, Jordan Matthews ran the 40 one-tenth of a second faster than Des Bryant and Allen Robinson, and he's just as big as those receivers. The next coach will almost certainly move Jordan Matthews outside where he belongs, which will boost his production. By the way, Jordan Matthews is currently on pace for 80 catches and 1,000 yards in his sophomore season catching passes from Sam Bradford and Mark Sanchez. Jordan Matthews is a great receiver, and he will be a lot more productive next year than he was even this year. That's why Jordan Matthews is my number one dynasty trade target this offseason. Now, when you're looking at dynasty, I was looking at Jordan Reed versus Travis Kelsey on my dynasty rankings. I talked to George Kritikos from Dynasty League Football and the Filmmetrics podcast, and George and I talked about dynasty rankings, and I told him that my most difficult rank was Jordan Reed versus Travis Kelsey. Where to put these two players? I couldn't decide where they belong. Who's better? In the long run, who would you rather have, Travis Kelsey or Jordan Reed? But on those dynasty rankings, we had for many months Travis Kelsey in the number four slot behind Rob Gronkowski, Tyler Eifert, and Austin Safarian Jenkins. But I think it's clear after single-handedly destroying the Philadelphia Eagles that Jordan Reed should be ranked ahead of Travis Kelsey because Jordan Reed is actually younger. He's 25 and a half versus Travis Kelsey's 26.2. Jordan Reed's extrapolated full-season statistics if he played all 16 games, 102 receptions, 1,116 yards, and 13 touchdowns. Travis Kelsey, 78 receptions, 920 yards, and 6 touchdowns. That's a huge differential. And Jordan Reed is younger. That makes it an easy decision to have Jordan Reed ahead of Travis Kelsey. The reason I like Travis Kelsey is I like his size a lot more than Jordan Reed. Travis Kelsey fits the archetype of the every down tight end in the NFL. Meanwhile, Jordan Reed fits the archetype of the move tight end who doesn't play on every down. So for that reason, I like Travis Kelsey more. But when you look at the production, there is no justification for putting Travis Kelsey ahead of Jordan Reed. The only other justification might be, well, Jordan Reed has experienced a litany of lower body injuries. And that's true. You would consider Jordan Reed more injury prone than Travis Kelsey. We all would. Just look at the injury track record. If you go to playerprofiler.com, you can click on the medical icon and you can see all of the various injuries that Jordan Reed has sustained to his lower body, not to mention the concussions. So it's scary, the list of injuries that Jordan Reed has endured. But we've also talked about Wolf's Law on this show. And Wolf's Law states that over time, players become hardened to their environment and they become more capable of sustaining effort, production in difficult conditions as their bodies harden to those conditions. And over time, NFL players become less injury prone as their bodies harden to the rigors of the NFL. And so with Jordan Reed, there's a balance. On the one hand, you have the litany of injuries and 
Previous injuries increase the probability of future injuries. However, games logged throughout your younger years improve your durability in your later years. So there's a counterbalance with Jordan Reed. The games he's logging right now are hardening him to the NFL experience, and that is counterbalancing the incredible injury history that also impacts his proneness to injury. So I heavily consider Jordan Reed's ability to stay healthy for the majority of this season. I think that's an incredibly positive sign for Jordan Reed and his future in the NFL and the likelihood that he's able to stay healthy in 2016 and beyond. Jordan Reed's ability to stay relatively healthy this year has eased my concerns about his proneness to injury. Enough that I can continue to put him ahead of Travis Kelsey, even though I prefer Travis Kelsey's body type. Because over 100 catches, over 1,100 yards, over 12 touchdowns at 25 years old, that player has to be in your top three dynasty tight ends. He just has to be. Now, it was another sweet week for the player rankings and lineup optimizer on playerprofiler.com. One of the things that really helped us was that we nailed Charles Sims. We had him higher than anyone else, and Charles Sims was one of the best running back plays of the week. In fact, he was the value play of the week. I don't think any other running back produced more fantasy points per dollar of salary than Charles Sims did. And the key with us with our rankings is that we're clinical. We don't let emotion and the biases about how we feel about players impact our rankings. Most other ranking systems have some inherent biases built into them, even those that claim to be super analytical. But you know that there's no biases with our rankings because you see Blake Bortles in the number two position and you know how I feel about Blake Bortles. But last week, one of the things that really helped us was that we completely nailed the running back position. We were a lot higher on Buck Allen and Bilal Powell and James White and Charles Sims than others. Also, part of being clinical is being lower on the brand name players than most other people are. So we were lower on Aaron Rodgers, lower on Tom Brady, and those ended up being great calls. So we just let the numbers guide us, but also the numbers with a premium on the most recent performances, and we don't take the player's reputation into account at all, and that has turned out to be beneficial. Now with the lineup optimizer, unfortunately the Ben Roethlisberger, Martavis Bryant stack killed a lot of our DraftKings lineups last week, so that was a bummer. But the FanDuel lineups destroyed the world. I mean, a lot of Charles Sims in there. We had FanDuel lineups that featured Blake Bortles, David Johnson, Buck Allen, Brandon Cooks, Jeremy Macklin, Zach Miller. I mean, it was almost as good as it gets. I mean, we didn't have a millionaire maker lineup course not. We didn't have a millionaire maker winning lineup. I'm not going to say that. We had some money-making lineups across our FanDuel optimal lineups. The FanDuel optimal lineups killed. But back to Charles Sims. I think that Charles Sims is the future of the Tampa Bay backfield. Just assuming that Doug Martin's going to come back, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't be wouldn't be quick to do that. So Charles Sims is one of my targets this offseason before Doug Martin makes a decision on where he's going to play, I'm targeting Charles Sims because I think there is a higher likelihood than most people think that Doug Martin won't be back and that Tampa Bay believes that Charles Sims is the running back of the future. Charles Sims on playerprofiler.com is best comparable to DeMarco Murray, and that's one of our closest comps in the database. And it seems like every week you see Charles Sims 
executing an explosive play. He can run inside. He can run outside. He's great in the passing game. There's no reason not to give the keys to the running back position to Charles Sims next year. So I think Tampa Bay has found their running back of the future in Charles Sims. And so has Arizona. David Johnson. David Johnson is going to be my number one running back in next year's redraft rankings. You can already book that one. Baltimore found its stud workhorse running back in Buck Allen. Buffalo has found its running back of the future in Carlos Williams. I think next year, there's going to be a committee with Carlos Williams and LaShawn McCoy. I think it's clear that LaShawn McCoy isn't equipped physically to be a bell cow back at the NFL level. I think Buffalo realizes this, and they're going to make sure that Carlos Williams gets 10 touches a game next year. And then in 2017, I believe Buffalo will most likely move on from LaShawn McCoy, and Carlos Williams will be installed as the workhorse back in Buffalo in 2017. And in Chicago, Jeremy Lankford projects to be the bell cow running back for the Chicago Bears next year. And it's interesting that all of these teams have found their running backs of the future and all were outside most of the top five running back lists that you read after the draft. You read Melvin Gordon, Todd Gurley, Amir Abdullah, Tevin Coleman, unfortunately, was on a lot of those top five lists, including my own. But all the running backs I mentioned, very few of them, if any, were on top five lists after the draft. And yet all of those backs project to be the running backs of the future for the teams I listed. It's amazing. Now, we had a buzzard right in. One funny buzzard. Looking at Trent Richardson and Eddie Lacy, Sabin reminds me of the overzealous Romanian ballet coach that leaves a trail of broken dreams and eating disorders in his wake. <laughs> and I'll leave you with one nugget. Kirk Cousins, before the you like that outburst, six touchdowns, eight interceptions. Kirk Cousins, after the you like that outburst, 20 touchdowns, Three interceptions. You like that, huh?